1: Hey, welcome to the show. So happy you're tuning in to Dose of Leadership. I do appreciate you tuning in. Great conversation today. Darren Gold is on the show. He's a managing partner at the Trurium Group out in San Francisco where he is one of the world's leading executive coaches and advisors to CEOs. He's an expert in leadership. He's a leadership junkie just like me. He's a great fit for Dose of Leadership. He's trained as a lawyer, worked at McKinsey Company for a while, was a partner at two San Francisco investment firms. He's been a CEO of two companies. He lives in San Francisco with his wife and children. And his group, Trurium Group, combines leadership development, executive coaching, and management consulting to help organizations turn leadership into their greatest competitive advantage, something I can certainly relate with. He's got a brand new book out there called Master Your Code. And I tell you, this is one of the best books I've read in a long time. And I think it's because what really resonated with me is because my leadership philosophy, my training, particularly the last eight years, and particularly as, as this show has developed and morphed and has helped me in my leadership development and understanding who I am as a leader, it's about being present. It's about fully understanding yourself, working on yourself constantly, right? Knowing yourself and seeking self-improvement. That's what it's all about. I really do think that's 80 to 85, maybe even 90% of the leadership battle. That is certainly part of of a successful leadership journey is knowing yourself and constantly seeking self-improvement. And Master Your Code, I got to tell you, I read this book in one setting and this is going to be a go-to for me and uh, I really appreciate what Darren did with this book and I really appreciated this conversation we had. You're really going to learn a lot. We really connected. It's one of my favorite conversations of the year to be quite honest. I'm going to be that that blunt. I know I say this all the time these and they're all they're all great conversations, but this one really stood out to me. And Darren is authentic. He means what he says. He's got a, you know, came from a pretty dark background and struggling background. We talk about it and uh, he's really morphed into, I think, one of the great thought leaders uh, that you probably haven't heard of, but I think if you keep your eye out for him, he's going to be one of the great ones, and it was a privilege to have him on the show. Uh, his book, Master Your Code, is about being the shape of your life. Don't be a prisoner of your circumstances, taking full responsibility, being accountable, letting go of grudges, forgiving unconditionally, and do what you are meant to do in this world. Again, finding your purpose, and a leadership journey is all about that. Being extraordinary and. Every aspect of your life, leading, parenting, relationships, career health, we talk about it all on this episode, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. Hey, look, the need for excellence and leadership has become essential for every organization today. Businesses are faced with unique and unprecedented challenges. With that unemployment rate at historical lows, you know, retaining your top high performance has become mission critical. You know, we're now faced with the unique distinction of having five generations under one roof harassment and diversity challenges are at center stage. All of this demands a greater range in how we lead and expect our people to be managed and developed. The technology realities and juggernauts such as Glassdoor and Indeed.com means anyone and everyone can see what's wrong with your company just by clicking a mouse. All of this boils down to an urgent need for effective and sustainable leadership development. Bad, mediocre leadership is a death sentence in today's environment. That's why if you're an organization that's needing to develop an effective leadership culture... If you've become dissatisfied with the status quo and mediocre results, then my leadership training is a refreshing and effective dose of common sense, time-tested principles that has proven to deliver lasting behavior change in individuals and effective culture improvement overall. I'm not a flavor of the month guy, right, whose methodologies and these overly cumbersome process improvement management techniques that we see from consultants, they typically demand significant investment and additional resources. My programs are focused inward, streamlining your current systems and redeploying your already existing talent. No additional resources are needed. As with any potential relationship, there's a real possibility we might not be a fit. I'm very selective in who I do business with. However, if you think you might be a match, I guarantee our combined forces would produce an amazing result. I'll customize your training with a deep personal involvement with you, your personnel, and all your resources. And most engagements can be solved within one to six months, but longer engagements are possible if needed. Regardless of how you work with me at the core, I'm going to help you create a leadership culture of decentralized decision-making, where the leadership responsibility is spread throughout the entire organization, where your senior. leadership leaders become effective at strategy and intent, and the middle and below become experts of empowered execution. That is the secret sauce of all my programs, this philosophy of decentralized control, where inept leadership behaviors, departmental silos, inadequate innovation, and lack of execution become dysfunctions of the past. If you're interested, find out more at doseofleadership.com. Connect with me, and I'd love to talk with you about how I can help create a decentralized leadership culture in your organization. All right, thanks for that plug. Now on with the show with the fascinating Darren Gold of the Trillium Group and the author of Master Your Code, here on Dose of Leadership. Well, Darren, I'm so excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Dose of Leadership. Oh, it's uh, great to be on. I really appreciate you having me. God, I, you know, I dove into your book last night and um, so many things that I want to talk to you about. Um, but I, I just say uh, on the onset, uh, oh. You know, thank you for being so authentic, open, and vulnerable in in your book. I always love it. We talk about authenticity and vulnerability on this show, and you certainly uh, have seen uh, the power behind it. So uh, I just want to thank you for that.
0: Thank you. I appreciate you uh, recognizing it and appreciating it.
1: You know, it was I was if I'm getting my timeline right, it was about 2007, 2008. You kind of have what you kind of consider a splat moment. It's similar to me, I had one in 2007. Almost got divorced and. You know, I thought I had everything figured out and then I was brought to my knees. Is, is that about the same with you? Was that the time frame, time frame, right? Yeah,
0: just after that. So uh, very close. You yeah. Know? And,
1: I, and I think I mentioned in the book, it's also, if you
0: remember back to 2008, that was not an easy time. No, <laughs> so no. It's like a macro uh, shock and some micro shocks. Um, yeah.
1: Well, talk, sure. talk to my listeners about that a little bit. Let's bring up that point. You know, you got a very interesting Childhood, I was, I did not know that when I read that in the book. I was like, oh my gosh, you came from a pretty, pretty rough rough background. And um, so let's just kind of bring our listeners up to speed at how you got to that splat moment.
0: Yeah. Uh, so a little bit of the background and then the, uh, the splat moment as you're describing it. Um, you know, yes, uh, in, in many ways, a rough childhood, uh, you know, divorced parents on the edge of poverty. Both of my parents spent, you know, sort of intermittent times in jail. There was, alcohol and drug abuse. My dad was essentially uh, an incredibly loving father to me, uh, which was the silver lining, a massive silver lining in all of this, but sort of some criminal activity, quite a bit of it actually. And through all of that, I think partly because of the love my father provided me and his insistence that I take a different path. I was able to emerge from that um, and have quite a bit of success um, in my life. uh, And through the you know my twenties and thirties, um, professional and financial and um, family success, and really created a, a very different life. Having said all that, um, as we'll get into, I was sort of on autopilot, and I was driven by a maniacal desire to not repeat, you know, the life I had grown up with, right. and a very strong uh, belief around the importance of financial security and success in the sort of traditional measures, and that's. Splat moment happened to me, you know, when I just about turned 40, uh, and I was fired, fired from sort of what I had thought was the pinnacle of my career uh, at the time. And it was a shock, a massive shock to the system. I had an incredible amount of self confidence. And it was really the first time, personally and professionally, that I even began to doubt myself. Right. And uh, really sort of rocked me to my core. And I think for many people who have gone through what you know, uh, some call a crucible experience or a splat moment. You've said it can, you have a choice in that moment. And I often say the, the, uh, the human superpower is the ability to choose the meaning we give to our circumstances. And I had a choice. I'm not sure I was conscious that I had the choice, but I could have seen that as a total failure and a representation of my lack of worth or an opportunity to really dig deep, learn about myself, evolve, develop, and grow. And I'm very fortunate I chose the latter. And my you know, last decade plus of life has been the most extraordinary part of my life.
1: Yeah. That resonates with me deeply because that, that, that pretty much mirrors what happened to me. And, and I, when you said something that struck me, the, the autopilot piece, and, you know, for me, when I lost my I was I was a pilot and I lost my job at nine eleven. Renovated reinvented myself in the corporate arena and started seeing a tremendous amount of success. But there was still something uh, that was wrong. There was a non as I reflect back on that now when I look back at that with a different lens. But when I was in it in that autopilot moment, I thought I was doing everything right. But if I was honest, I, I think that what led to that splat moment is because I was I was I had a, a, a tremendous amount of lack of awareness, I guess I could put it that way. And I was dr- I was being fueled by ego more than yeah. anything.
0: Is that describe you? Hundred percent. And uh, I think it describes a lot of people. Yes, <laughs> you I know, agree. we um, we go through life with one main goal, which is to protect and to serve you know to have the ego survive. Right. That, and when you know, for listeners that aren't maybe familiar with the word ego, it doesn't mean arrogance. It means self. Yeah. This notion of psychological self, and we do everything we can to protect it and uh, to make it feel secure. And we're blinded to um, a lot of possibility and reality, uh, given that just sort of focus. Yeah. And that was very much true for me.
1: Yeah. It, it, the, and reading your book, I think you kind of came to the same conclusion. Yeah, You realize that the ego is not really, it's, that's not you. That's not the real you, right? Yeah. And that awareness right. piece is there and that ego is there for that survival. It's that alligator brain, right? Like you talk about, it's, it's the alligator piece that was the, the basic of the brain that kind of drives that survival, right? Yeah.
0: It's, uh, you know, what used to be physical survival has been replaced with psychological survival. Exactly. And thank goodness we don't. For many of us, uh, the, the, uh, the idea of physical survival is no longer a primary need. For some, it is. Uh, but for almost all of us, psychological survival is the thing that we, uh, that has been replaced, uh, that has replaced physical survival. And we grow up constructing a set of beliefs, values, and rules, what I call in the book, our program, subconsciously, that um, are designed to keep us safe, psychologically safe, but not to thrive. And the whole premise of the book and my learning is um, the awareness of that program uh, and then the ability to reconstruct it uh, into what I call a code that really serves
1: yeah, and it's great. I love I love how you deconstruct that. You walk through that process of of basically taking beliefs that we're kind of programmed with, as you say, you just said, and you're saying in your book that they're there, and they're put there, not rightly or wrongly, but we're there because we think that's what makes us or helps us survive, right? Yeah. And then that's for right. the most part of my life, I know anyway, and I think. I think this is the point in, that you talk about in the book is that we, we think these beliefs are right or wrong, and that's kind of the fallacy. And life can start to change or pivot when you start looking at beliefs. I'm paraphrasing here, but I think if, if beliefs aren't right or wrong, they're either limiting or they're empowering, right? Yeah. And that's and when was, things can change, yeah. right?
0: Yeah. And I didn't go one step further. We don't even see them as beliefs, right? So the first step is just to actually just to see see them. Right, because I think we go through most of our lives, my I did myself. Just that's just the way the world works. Exactly. That's the way I am, right? And the moment I began to see them as constructed beliefs, beliefs I had made up, largely as a child. And I say in the book I was a forty-year-old man who realized he was run by a program written by a seven-year-old boy. (laughs) Right. That moment of awareness is extraordinary. And then you're right. The question becomes not whether the belief is true, um, but does it serve me? And and in that kind of question opens up a possibility for a whole new way of seeing yourself and others in the world. And then the actions that you can take and the results you can get just massively expand.
1: Yeah, yeah well said. And I want to I want to keep, keep on that point for a minute because it is so yeah. critical. Because, I mean, that, that happened to me. Again, it didn't happen overnight. The splat moment happened, and I would think it's probably... You know, kind of a gradual fade. But the awareness piece is once the awareness volume knob was turned up, it was almost deafening, right? Mm. And yeah. then, but that awareness allowed me, and you talk about this in the book, it allows you to start pursuing the reprogramming, right? Am yes, I saying that right? right?
0: Yeah, Yeah. very, yeah, very well, well said. Um, and, and the first chapter is on awareness because it's foundational. You know, we can't, you know, we can't change what we can't see. Um, and I like to say there are these three domains. There's the domain of I know. We kind of know what that is. We know what we know. There's the domain of I know, I don't know. That's where most traditional learning happens. Right. Uh, but those are thin slices. And then there's this massive domain of the I don't know, I don't know, I don't know and it's in that big massive domain where all of our deep learning and growth occurs. And um, sometimes that will just happen. Some event will catalyze and open, create an opening for that domain um, where you see something that you didn't even know you didn't know. Um, and there are ways to create access to that domain. And part of the book is um, really designed to create openings into that domain for people, um, and that's where Real paradigm shifts um, can take place.
1: Yeah, I, I, I I mean, I love this, and and I know this is a leadership podcast, but I, you know, I belabor this point when I go through leadership training with folks. I spend a lot of time on this whole idea of awareness because I don't think you can truly, if you can be as an effective leader as you can be, unless you fully understand this part of your brain. I'm a firm believer of that. That this awareness piece really is the secret sauce to leadership in my opinion that I I used to agree more yeah I used to think it was so external I got to motivate this person to do this I got to be so inspirational the reality is it's 80 90 percent of this awareness and working on yourself now how does that help motivate inspire I think it's because you're shining the light on yourself and it it gives people around you the permission to do the same I think that's where the influence comes from what do you think when you hear me say that
0: oh well I think you've you've nailed it um it's one of the most important tenets of leadership work that i've done in as when when i've been leading an organization and in my work with leaders and it's pointing to sort of the heart of gandhi's leadership you don't have to look that far to find some extraordinary leaders gandhi being one of them now not in a business context but for goodness sakes you know leading a nation of people um under extraordinary circumstances and he's famous for having said um, a longer quote, but it's sort of um, paraphrase, which is "Be the change you want to see in the world." And the basic philosophy that Gandhi had, and frankly, any um, extraordinary leader, is that we have to give up the right to try to change others, and rather focus on mastering ourselves, mm-hmm. and then embody the very things that you want to see others uh, in others. And when you see that, if you've ever been worked with a leader who has been totally congruent in terms of the things that he or she says they stand for and the things that he or she does, it's such an attractive place to be. And your, nat- your actions and behaviors nat- naturally will follow. Yeah. And so there's like this notion of um, being unattached to whether people follow, sort of what I would call kind of unconditional leadership, that, that starts, begins, and almost ends with a complete focus on self-mastery. And uh, it's just an incredible point you've raised.
1: Yeah, I wish I would have figured that out in my twenties instead of <laughs> my mid forties, yeah. right? I but know. It, but it's so true. And I think you know, I think back to when I said to myself in my twenties, "Yes, I'm going to. I want. I want to learn all I can about leadership." It was so outwardly focused on a caricature, right? I need yeah. to be this John Wayne esque type figure. I need to be whatever. And I got into the Marine Corps in this testosterone fueled type a Mm -hmm. pool of personalities but it wasn't until i started meeting some of those people that you just mentioned those ones that that weren't the norm they were kind of had quirks and they were kind of introverted some of them were and didn't look the part but they had a presence about them a command presence and i think it goes to the heart of what you just said it's because they they had mastered themselves
0: They've mastered themselves and there was no incongruence. And you can see, you, you know, we have an amazing ability as human beings to pick up on the very subtle cues. Mm-hmm. And we do, it unco- we do it subconsciously. We know when we're in the presence of someone where what they're saying, how they're holding themselves, what they're believing are totally aligned. And it creates an emotional field. Um, there's a really great book. Uh, After your listeners (laughs) read mine, you should read this a failure of nerve by Edwin Friedman and he um, Describes this notion of an emotional field where leaders will create a field that has um, an Unbelievable impact of the people within that field and and one you know one of the things he talks about is anxiety and one of the questions I ask um, and I borrow from my partner uh, Jonathan Rosenfeld uh, is to leaders I say when you walk into a room, do you raise or lower the anxiety in the room? Mm. And, um, a lot of leaders do, you know, raise anxiety and what do they do? They massively, they create this emotional field where they massively affect and degrade the ability of the people in that room, the people that are supposed to be following them to think clearly, to be creative, to be their best. And it gets into a lot of neuroscience and all of that. But the point is that, um, yeah, who you are, how you're being, um, and the congruence and authenticity of who you are, which emanates from a ton of work on looking inward and really mastering yourself. I start the book with one of my favorite quotes, which is which is a Stoic philosopher Epictetus: "No man is free who is not master of his own mind." Right. And this notion that um, we have a mind, it's it's controlling us for the most part. How do we begin to master it? And for those of you listening that you know, have a desire to, um, be great leaders in any aspect of your life, um, professional or personal, that notion of mastering your mind, um, is the, is the most essential. It might be.
1: I agree. And I just feel like I've just started scratching the surface of it. You know, I just turned 51 and I've been probably ever since really this podcast has really steered me down that way and having all these conversations, but I've really got into Eckhart Tolle over the last year mm. and a half. Are, are you a fan of his? I
0: am. Yeah, it's hard not to be he's such a, you know, wise uh man and his his writings are you know beautiful and and clear and powerful.
1: I sense that, you know, just reading your book. I thought man, I bet you the, I bet you he's a fan of him. And yeah. uh, I know yeah. I am and he talks he talks a lot about what we're talking about here, right? I mean of, of being completely present in the moment and having that full awareness. And yeah. it, do, it is it's different. different. I, when you do follow it, it does it, it I don't know, it's like you put on a different set of glasses, right?
0: Totally, you know, it's the stillness of the mind, and um, you know, there. I think what many people um, misunderstand or underappreciate about that wisdom is that stillness does not mean complacency or slowness or impotence. Right? It's power, power in the best sense of the word. Right? When you're still, when you're not consumed with thinking ahead or thinking, you know, you know, in the past and regretting. Right? You have an amazing clarity. And from that clarity, man, you can do some amazing things and move quickly and be decisive and take action. So this isn't about you know sitting still and not doing anything. It's having the clarity of mind and the stillness of mind to see ten x more than what anybody else is seeing. And from that place, you can take massive action and have you know whatever result you're looking for. Um, and hopefully, it's results that have you know you know do good in the world.
1: Yeah, well said. And I think that. <clears throat> It is surprising. I mean, like you said, when you have that awareness, the volume can almost be deafening because you don't realize how clouded and how cluttered and how maniacal our mind is, right? Yeah. The, the, you know, some people, the, the monkey. The mind, drunk monkey.
0: You know, right? yeah. <laughs> you know it's, and, and with practice, um, it begins to quiet. Yeah. You know, so it's a bit of a kind of a J-curve effect uh, when you start to begin this, uh, if you're familiar with the J-curve your listeners, right? You, you you feel like you're regressing uh, yeah, right. before you actually make progress yeah. and you follow that, like that, the line of the J and then you sort of plateau. And then all of a sudden, um, you know, people that practice stillness or meditation or mindfulness, whatever you want to call it, um, there you the dividends come. Uh, but it takes a little bit of time because what you'll start to begin to see is, wow, how noisy my mind is, how incessant the chatter is and for many people that can be really disheartening and yeah. uh, they can just sort of like, I'm not going to do this, <laughs> but I always encourage people to stick with it. It's like anything, anything worthwhile takes effort and it takes persistence. And the same thing is true with uh, kind of any kind of meditative practice.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I know, and, and again, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface, but a couple of years being really intense and intentional about that, I, I see the difference and it does help. And I think it's important to, too, 'Cause I was always one of those guys and I and I still struggle with this is like, you know, when I see where I wanna be and I see where I'm at and that gap is so large, it mm. it just you know, produces inaction. I mean, all of us are guilty of that at some extent at some times, but it's the same with meditative practices. I had in my mind that well, my mind should be completely still in focus, but I think it's important yeah. to realize that yeah. Your mind's going to drift. It's the awareness of the drift. That's 90% of the battle, right? hundred
0: percent. Right. Yes. And I had uh, this conversation literally a week ago with my best friend who uh, is thinking about, oh, I should start meditating. He said, oh, I sat down and I couldn't quiet my mind. I said, look, the goal isn't to quiet your mind. The goal is to notice. Right. And it's the noticing, right? The awareness, which, you, which we've talked about, right? That's mindfulness. Exactly. So, you know, your, no- your mind's going to be noisy. Um, and there's no goal. The more you strive to achieve something in mindless, mindfulness or meditation, the more you've moved away from the very thing that you're supposed to be doing, which is just simple awareness, no judgment, uh, no attachment to any outcome. And that's a kind of metaphor for life in in a lot of respects. Certainly. Yeah. Certainly.
1: Well, the book, Master Your Code, I mean, we're talking a lot about this stuff. I mean, I think even pretty much what we talked about here in 20 minutes, it really just scratches the surface in the first couple chapters, really. You got a lot more in there. Um, let's just hit some of the high points in there. You know, we, yeah. you, you you talk about, you know, your history and how you got to that point and realizing that you're the author of your life. Then you go into the second chapter, you know, I act, I don't react. I love that, like the intention. As a pilot, that is our mm-hmm. bread and butter, what makes a professional pilot. Know that you don't react, you act, right? Yep. I, I love that. Well, we can go back to some of these, but I just want to hit some of these high points for our listeners to kind of pique their curiosity because I love the way you you map it out. Like I said, the first chapter, I'm the author of my life. The second one, I act, I don't react. Third chapter, I play to win. Chapter four, I'm 100% responsible. I forgive unconditionally. Chapter five, I seek to understand. Chapter six, I own my own identity. In chapter seven, chapter eight, I never stop learning. Chapter nine, I am my word. And ten, I live on purpose. It's like a just this chronological kind of um, roadmap, right? To reprogram yeah. your mind. I love it. So w- what really... Two things: what prompted you to to write this book, and number two, um, what is your what is your favorite part of the book? I know that's like asking who's your favorite kid, right? But- yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's great. I have a, I have an answer. Um, it's kind of a two part answer. But first, the the prompted me to write the book really um, two things. Uh, one was uh, my oldest son, two and a half years ago, was going to college, and I'm not a letter writer, but I decided to write him a letter. And it was um, my humble attempt to give him some words of wisdom for leading a good life. And I wrote it, and it just flowed out of me. And I sent it around to a few friends. I said, hey, I, I wrote this for my son, Jack. What, you know, what do you think? And the response was overwhelming. And I sent it to some, some clients who are CEOs of very large companies. And before I knew it, without even trying, they had sent it around, and thousands of people uh, had read it. And I bumped into a few people that I didn't even know. And so I knew that there were, that I was onto something that it resonated for people and that there were the seeds of a book in that letter. And so that was really the, the catalyst. Um, so thank you to my son, Jack for, for being the inspiration.
1: Yeah. And let me, let um, me interrupt you there too, because I read that. Um, it's the letter advice from a father to a son on your blog post that you wrote a couple of years ago. Yeah, it is great. Right. And, um, Yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to say that that caught my attention too, by the way. So Uh, I just, but thank you.
0: Yeah. And then, and then it was, I think also just the work that I've done over the past really decade intensely, but then of course, you know, over the course of of my life. Um, and, um, knowing that, um, there was a book that I needed to write. And so it was the sort of combination of those two very strong feelings. And I was in a leadership uh, retreat, four day leadership retreat, um, and we had to come up with uh, a commitment. And uh, I don't know, what do I want to commit to? And it had to be sort of a big commitment because we were going to practice. What does it look like to really declare that commitment and embody it? And I kept coming back to uh, writing a book. I had just written a letter to my son uh, and I said, okay, that's it. And I, uh, I landed on that and I said, I'm going to, the next 12 months, I'm going to write the first draft of my book. And I did. Um, so that was really the, the inspiration.
1: Love it and I do love the fact that you know I did see that um, in your blog post that it was uh, the inspiration for the book but you anyway, it's a great post you know Thank you. The, the simple things and you talk about awareness not worrying what others think about you which I think is everybody deals with that listening responsibility accountability choose to be kind forgiveness be present all that stuff good stuff but the yeah. second question what what part really if you had to look at your book what really stands out to you what what is
0: what was your yeah. favorite
1: chapter to write, I guess?
0: Ah, uh, yeah. Wow. There's, there, it, there's, it's sort of a tie. I hope you don't mind me no, no. Uh, saying that. Uh, but I'll start with um, chapter seven, which is I Own My Identity. and It starts with a Muhammad Ali quote, I'm the king of the world. And um, one of the most powerful things that I've uh, learned uh, in my life is that um, we, I, uh, we're all run uh, by an identity, an identity uh, which we're not aware of, um, and that identity is this aggregation of beliefs that we have about ourselves. Yeah. I say, you know, the math teacher said you're not a good math student, Johnny, and Johnny's forms a belief subconsciously that I'm not a good math student. So you can imagine the scaffolding of those beliefs, and they aggregate into an identity. And I often ask people, what's your identity? And they look at me like I'm crazy. But we each have an identity. And I say in the book, the greatest driver of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with your identity. And when you take that and you look at it and say oh my god every action that I take every behavior every decision I make is a Manifestation of this subconscious identity So if I want to take a certain set of actions to lead to extraordinary results I got to take a look at my identity I got to understand what it is and because it was made up I can reconstruct it and so I talk about the power of Reconstructing one's identity. I talk about the my own identity. I'm not an author which I held. So somebody who holds an identity that I am not an author will talk a lot about writing a book, but will never write one. And guess what I was doing? I was talking a lot about it, right. I wasn't writing right. one. And it wasn't until I consciously shifted my identity powerfully with 100% certainty, I am an author. Um, and a book naturally flowed out of that identity. And so for me, that's just that was just a great chapter to write. It's such a powerful um, shift for people to know um, that they have that um, access and the work that I do with a lot of business leaders is about giving them the awareness of that and then the experience of reconstructing their identity and the results are, are, are almost always pretty extraordinary.
1: I love it and you know there' was two blog posts that I highlight in fact I'm staring at them right now when I, last night when I was doing my homework on you. And reading your book, but the the two posts that came out—the one that we just mentioned about the advice from the father to his son, and then this power of identity one, which is essentially mm. the catalyst for your chapter that you're just talking about—it's my one of my favorite chapters too. So I'm glad you brought that up. But I yeah. I love that it really resonated with me because, you know, the, and that even speaks to me too now. I mean, there's a book inside of me, but I'm that guy that's like, oh, I started, but I'm but I haven't I haven't claimed that identity that I'm an author yet, right? Yeah. Yeah, but, and
0: until you do, I would say that book won't get
1: written. Exactly, and I, that makes yeah. perfect sense. But I want to, you know, embarrass you a little bit here. I love your. What struck me about your post is, you know, you say this is your identity. I am an extraordinary leader, coach, author, husband, father, son, brother, colleague, friend. I command my mind and body to use every ounce of my unlimited potential, and infinite capacity to massively and positively impact the lives of others and you said yeah. you say this every day multiple times per day. What's interesting about that is is I can imagine when you wrote that on all those things you listed. The limiting beliefs in that mind, that monkey brain, yeah. Probably tells you you and I suck at being a father. I suck at being a husband, right? I felt at this I'm not an author, right? I mean, and I think that's important that everybody feels that. You're not alone. I think that's important. That's the biggest lesson I've learned ever having 400 conversations on this show On this show, is no matter what level of experience or accomplishments that I've, uh, the guests that I've had on my show, everybody deals with this on a daily basis. But the fact that you're sitting there, you know, I'm going to, and you say this in, in your post, I scream it out loud whenever I can. Right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. I've said it three times. It's seven, you know, it's almost eight o'clock in the morning, West Coast time. And I've already said it three times. Um. And I've said it with a lot of emotional and physical intensity, and I never miss a day. Yes. So part of the you know this idea is um, you want to get these kinds of results in life, and they're no by no means guaranteed. And life's not easy, right? And there are ups and downs for all of us, myself included. Uh, it requires a consistency uh, of practice. And we can talk a little bit about rituals and daily rituals, if you'd like. But um, this one for me in particular is it's not about writing something down, sort of you know half believing it and then expecting things to change. Right? It's about mm-hmm. really believing it with yeah. 100% certainty and wiring it into the, into the subconscious mind. And there is a lot of research and science behind you know, the, the power of congruent affirmation. Congruent meaning Like it's not like, oh, I am an extraordinary leader, coach, author, speaker. No, it's congruent in your body, in what you're believing, um, in your emotions. Uh, and, um, the notion of saying it over and over again is then the subconscious mind is like, okay, this guy's serious. <laughs> I, right. You know, I'm gonna, I, I, I got it,
1: you know? Well, and I think that's, that's what's important to, you know, and I think I got this from Eckhart Tolle. It's, a, it's like, it's like your mind, your subconscious mind is like that, that unplowed or that plowed, that freshly plowed field, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It will root whatever is planted it doesn't exactly. know right or wrong all it knows is like oh well there's a seed here i'm going to plant it and i'm going to let it grow it could be poison ivy or it could be a beautiful stalk of wheat right it exactly. doesn't exactly and, and you and,
0: have to be the guardian of what goes into that mm-hmm. and um you know put into it intentionally what will serve you and protect you know what won't serve you and uh more often than not almost all of the time we're allowing whatever it is that goes into it to go into it and we wonder why you know we get frustrated and challenged and
1: stuck um,
0: with the best of intentions
1: it it's it, and in, if we're talking about leadership I think it it feeds into this notion that I think all great leaders and you have to have this belief that you have to susp- suspend the belief if you want to be in the leadership pool and you want to be effective at it, you have to suspend the belief on how things are going to happen. You just have to know they're going to happen. Does that make sense? It totally does. It's like you're living in this world of faith or this this I like I like the analogy of the, the freshly plowed fields. Like, okay, well what do you want to plant in there? And and yeah. by you screaming this to the universe every single day, seven times a day, like you really mean it, you're planting seeds. That's what you're doing. Totally.
0: You know, and I think, you know, the, the, um, the aspiration can be pretty big. I mean, it can't be, you know, ridiculous. Like, I'm going to be an astronaut in two years. That, right. You know. right, right, right. Uh, and speaking of that, the great example I often give was JFK's uh, speech. We're going to put a man on the moon exactly. by the how... end of the decade. Right. And that singular declaration delivered with certainty, right, and congruence, Um, created a new future for people to live into. And I often say that one of the most important capacities of a leader is to create new futures for people to live into. And into that new future, the actions and activities of an entire society shifted as a consequence of that act of leadership. So, yeah, there's all sorts of things you're doing for yourself, right? Creating a new reality, a new future for you yourself to live into. And as you're leading others, right, to have the, certainty to suspend the, the disbelief because we all have doubts right
1: right um, and they never go away
0: they're always they going know, to be there they're yeah. always going to be there right and to declare that new future regardless of the doubts you might be feeling um so that people you want to see people change behavior give them a new future to live into because they're living into a future it's, it's usually a default future that's past derived um that's a that's a really important gift of leadership
1: that's such a great example. I never thought about it in the, in the way you did, but you're right. That JFK speech is, is a perfect example of that suspending that belief. And if you listen to the entire speech, it's very specific, much like your identity statement is. He goes into specifics about we're going to go there with a rocket that has brand new metals that hasn't even been discovered yet. That bought, you know, and 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 he went into like innate detail. He didn't just put a blanket statement. Where we're going to put a man on the moon in ten years. He That's went into a great details. Point. Yeah, you know, we're, this is gonna be this is gonna manifest, right?
0: Yeah, which you know to me is su- suggests a leader who absolutely believed it was gonna happen. Exactly, right? Because he had visualized. I mean, essentially, um, exactly what was gonna happen, including things that hadn't yet
1: taken, yet taken place. Yeah. Great example. Yeah. What's your yeah. second? What's your tie for your second one? What's the
0: other chapter? Oh wow! This, you know, uh, I wrote a very a deeply personal chapter, uh, which is chapter five, and um, it's uh, you know the story of um, my forgiveness of yeah. my mother, and uh, so that was just, I think, um, a very moving chapter for me to write. It it was, uh, I I just I was just very proud of uh, of the chapter, and um, and I really as painful as that whole story uh has been for me no longer is it's very joyful actually for me now um it was really delightful to
1: write it it's so true i mean we i'm sure in everybody's you know, this isn't you know new but it's always when you look at forgiveness kind of the cliche it's, it's it's not for the person it's for you it's not for the person that wronged you or whatever or perceived wrong you it's for you right and yep. and that is is critical, and, and I think that I learned that late in life too, and sounds like you did too. I mean, once you realized that you were falsely protecting yourself, that's what you were trying to do. You were trying to protect yourself from further pain. Yes, but you actually were just reliving it over and over again. Is all you were doing? Right? Yeah, you're robbing you know yourself of a, an
0: immense amount of freedom. You know, yeah. freedom. You know, uh, you know, blame and resentment is a is imprisoning. And there's a tremendous release of energy that um happens when you um seize the selfishness of blame and forgive unconditionally and again it doesn't you have to look far to see the examples of extraordinary acts of forgiveness which i detail in the book which you know many of your listeners will know gandhi appears again in the book in that regard you know how do you actually forgive somebody that tries to take your life. Exactly. Um, I had that very formative experience. I remember it to the day. I, 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 can't say, I was like 10 or 11 years old. And uh, I saw the news that John Paul Pope John Paul II had been, that it was an attempted assassination and that he had forgiven his assailant. Right. And I remember turning to my father and I was like, how? I couldn't fathom how anybody could forgive you know, somebody that would take their lives. And I, I, I never thought I would be able to fathom it, and I, I totally do now. I can totally see how and and why. And if I were in the same position, I have gotten to the point in my life where that would not only be effortless; it would just be automatic. I would absolutely forgive.
1: Yeah, and it's not about letting people off scot free. I mean, there's no, still exactly. there's still accountability for actions, right? And and the reality is, I wrong you, and I violate your trust. And we were friends up to that point. We may not be friends after that point, but you can still forgive me, right?
0: That's a great point, and I'm glad you added that
1: because a lot of people, myself included,
0: um, kind of equate, you know, forgiveness with um, absolving, you know, not, not you right? know letting people off the hook, not holding them accountable. And those two things can absolutely and must coexist. Yeah. Um. But to do it without um spite or vengeance. Um. Uh. But yeah. To to sort of um. Just let people, you know, forgive and forget. I'm not sure uh, is is the the, the point. It, well, it is a little bit around forget, and and this is one of those things that gets, you know, incredibly nuanced, um, and it requires a like a depth of exploration and a maturity around it to really get all the subtleties. Um, and I've spent a lot of time, you know, in very you know very personal way dealing with that, dealing with the the relationship to forgiveness and what does that mean and. And, uh, it's something that defies simple explanation. It has to be
1: experienced. Yeah. But it's so powerful, right? It's probably one of the most powerful. It's, it's probably one of the most difficult, but the results are, if you work through it, it's probably one of the most powerful forces in the universe. Really. It really is.
0: I agree. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Good stuff, man. I tell you, and I don't know how anybody can't see that, that this can't, I know this isn't necessarily a leadership book. I mean, but this is a leadership podcast. It, it definitely is for leaders. I think if you're going to be, uh, an effective leader, you have to understand and master yourself. And totally. And this, yeah, book, this, I, this book gets to that point, right?
0: Yes. Yes. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I, I think it's very much a leadership book and it's very much not a leadership book, Right. Right. <laughs> meaning that, you know, it's not narrow, it's not a, I was actually given quite a lot of advice by my publisher and others who I respect a lot to write a more narrowly focused book, you know, pick a segment of the population that you're really writing for. And every ounce of my body was like, I can't, I can't do that. I've got to write a bigger book. uh And a lot of my clients who are CEOs, um, are, you know, this book is kind of a, they're a, a guidebook for them. So if you're a leader, which many of your listeners are, or an aspiring leader, and frankly, everyone's a leader, because you're a leader of something and you're certainly a leader of yourself. Um, th- it's an, you know, I believe humbly it's a, an essential book. Um, Cause the lessons are, you know,
1: definitely leadership lessons. Yeah. And I, I would echo that. I mean, that's one of the big reasons why I started this podcast. And what I try to get across is that leadership is, is every aspect of your life. Right. And that's where I yeah. dropped the ball. I was just focusing on leadership on the external business front. And I failed on the personal relationship family front and it almost cost me my marriage so it's every and it wasn't until i started looking at leadership in every aspect of my life that i became a more effective leader on what i was chasing anyway right yeah 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 and you know becoming a leader
0: of yourself um the other parts of your life begin to take care of themselves
1: yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah. But I still wake up even today. and I'm like, God, I still got a lot of work to do on myself. Oh. Don't right? we all,
0: <laughs> myself included. And, and that's a great point. you said it a few times, like barely scratching the surface. Um, this notion of mastery, and I talk about this in the book, uh, and there've been some great books written just on mastery, but mastery is a path. It's not a destination. Exactly.
1: You never and plant the flag, right? You never like I've arrived. Yeah,
0: no, there it's a mountain with no top. Exactly. Right? As as you think you get to a peak. There's another one. And, um, That's the beauty of being on a path to mastery, this never-ending notion. And um, I know for myself, this will be a path that I will be on until I'm no longer here. So I have no delusion that I will get to the promised land. uh, um, And I enjoy the fact that I'm on the
1: path. Me too. And I I totally get that. And I think that, again, I wish I would have known this when I was in my 20s Mm -hmm. and not but I, I don't know. Sometimes you got to have, and I think everybody, I can't remember who told me this, and maybe it was uh, a therapist that I was, when I was going through therapy, he said that I, he because everybody has a splat moment in some varying degree of severity. Yeah. And you started the podcast saying that it's some, the important thing is, no, you have that choice in that moment. And that always yeah. fascinates me because you and I can experience the same traumatic event, whatever. We could be side by side and experience the exact same traumatic event. One of us sinks and one of us rises through the ashes, and that always oh, amazes me. And th- the difference is somebody took it. You know, it was just the choices that w- we made, right?
0: It's 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 it is the human superpower. And um, if you want a great uh, recounting of that, you know, Victor Frankel's "Man's Search for Meaning." You know, you had people in you know Nazi concentration camps, death right. camps. Who were facing the most unimaginable circumstances, and um, in that moment, had a choice. And this is Viktor Frankl's main point: that he could choose his attitude, regardless of his circumstances. And um, you'd have, you know, the same people in the same unbelievably, unimaginable, dire circumstances. You know, most perishing, and some thriving. And that is like, wow, like. If we can tap into that superpower, that despite what's happening externally, we have the power to choose to give them to give meaning to our circumstances, and we can do it in a way that's empowering, or disempowering, and it's our choice. That's that's a great place to be in.
1: From. Love it, man! I knew this conversation was going to be good. I mean, uh, this is just—I could go on with hours for you, and and we'll have to have you come back and, and talk more. But I want to give a chance to talk about and give a plug for Trium and what you do. Yeah. Um. And and for the book. So, how can people learn more about you? Learn about your company. Um, yeah.
0: Great. So I'll start start with my company. Uh, it's the Trium Group, this extraordinary uh, consulting firm that has the privilege of working with. Um, you know, senior leaders of some of the, the world's greatest companies. And uh, we do a lot of the work that we're talking about here, integrated with kind of business strategy. and um, Triumgroup.com is our website, T-R-I-U-M group.com. You can learn more about our firm. Uh, and then I have an author website, Darren J. Gold, D-A-R-R-E-N-J-G-O-L-D, which is a, bo- uh, a site about the book and some resources, um, some of my blogs you can get on my mailing list. And then, uh, of course, I'd love you to uh, get your hands on the book, and it's available on Amazon, hardcover, paperback, audiobook. I narrate it. If you like the sound of my voice, mm-hmm. that could be a good choice. And the uh, and the Kindle version.
1: Well, I, I encourage all my listeners to connect with Darren uh, and certainly get the book. Uh, it's going to be a go-to for me. A uh, great book. Like I said, I just started last night. Pretty much seventy-five percent through it, and uh, it, it doesn't disappoint. So, uh, Darren, so nice to know you meet you i'm so glad uh, mutual connections of our put us in in touch and i um, so glad to have you on the show because this was uh, leadership gold i really enjoyed having you on
0: i've been thrilled to be on and i'm i have a sense it won't be our last conversation absolutely uh, all right nice darren yeah.
1: thanks for coming on nice. Thank you. Hey, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Dose of Leadership. I do appreciate your support. If you could do a couple things for me, go subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast app. Go to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher. And if you could do that for me, I would truly appreciate it. Also, if you're interested in working with me, if you're interested in some team leadership training, go to doseofleadership.com and check out Legacy Leader Blueprint. I understand how difficult it can be to get effective leadership training for your team. It never seems like you have the time or the budget. My course, Legacy Leader Blueprint, solves that problem. Quality leadership training that doesn't disrupt your busy schedule or break your budget. 20 high-impact videos and 6 hours of live group coaching with me that will allow you and your team to become true leaders of influence. I will teach you how to defeat mediocrity and stagnation, create high-impact cultures of initiative, and build empowered teams with high degrees of trust. Go check out doseofleadership.com, click on Legacy Leader Blueprint, and enroll your team today.